What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Bring in show music, please. This is Squawk Pod, the daily podcast brought to you by the team behind Squawk Box. NYC, this is CNBC Control 2. CNBC's essential morning show. PCR 2. Every day, get the best stories, debate, and analysis from the biggest names in business and politics. All right, we're coming to it next. Today on Squawk Pod. The coronavirus is different. It is big. Market prognosticator Mohamed El Aryan sounds a warning about China's superbug, but he's calling for some perspective and restraint. We should try and resist our inclination to buy the dip. Iowa's voters caucus tonight. Will Democrats feel the burn? We'll hear from a former economist for the House Ways and Means Committee. Bernie Sanders' electability is being relitigated now. And a Republican strategist who says the burn may be all for Bloomberg. Bloomberg's play has been to have Bernie Sanders get a couple of wins in these early states, then have a establishment freakout. We've got those stories and a lot more from the Super Bowl ads to Bezos's big tweet. I just took a DNA test. Turns out I'm 100% Lizzo's biggest fan. Do you need me to sing it? I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer. It's Monday, February 3rd, 2020. Squawk Pod begins right now. Stand back you by in three, two, one, cue please. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Squawk Box here on CNBC. We're live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. I'm Becky Quick, along with Andrew Ross Sorkin and Michelle Caruso Cabrera. Joe is off today. First up today on the podcast, an update on the coronavirus outbreak. The number of cases in the United States has grown as of Monday morning to 11. Globally, there are over 17,000 confirmed cases and over 300 fatalities. The coronavirus concerns escalated during a national holiday in China, the Lunar New Year. The Chinese government extended the holiday to a full week because of the outbreak. But overnight, the markets in mainland China finally reopened for trading, giving us the first look at stocks there since January 23rd. What we saw wasn't great. In the single session, the Shanghai Composite lost $393 billion in market value, its worst day since 2015, and its worst day after a lunar holiday in 13 years. The Chinese central bank downplayed the sell-off and pumped over $170 billion into the system for support. Here's Michelle Caruso Cabrera, Squawk Box guest host this morning and a veteran international business journalist. You close your markets for an entire week. I mean, they do that by design for the lunar new year. We have rules in this country against that because you want liquidity available for when people so you're going to get a massive move so you don't want panic selling you want, well, you want you want the market to be able to respond in real time and investors to respond in real time rather than you know making everybody wait for an entire week before they can actually get into the market remember after 9/11 we our stock exchange perfect. worked very hard to reopen because they felt liquidity was an important mandate. Sometimes you want a weekend or you want time for people to actually like digest this. No, this but, but the question is whether, whether it would have been worse the other way. Oh, I, I don't think so. When you can, you can respond every single day. Absolutely. But, no, but sometimes I think you want the, the reason. The reason sometimes people work from a Friday to a Monday tomorrow. is that's why you have a limit down, right? Okay, it goes okay. down ten percent. Everybody, take a breather. We're going to shut down for a few minutes. Relax. And then okay, but bring it you again. You argue that you want it to be able to be on all the time or not. The I, limit down thing to me 
uh, goes straight to the argument that actually you don't really want the markets to work it, it's exactly to assuage to concerns like right. yours you know, whether limit down works or not, I don't care, but you should not have your market closed for an entire week. I do like limit down. <laughs> I have to say, it's just to let the steam blow off eventually and to have a, an ease and take it off. We would have it slow down for a few minutes and see what happens. Right. So that it's not like crazy trading that's coming from, right. from computer algorithms and things, too. Later on in the pod, you'll hear more about how the virus and the infusion of liquidity from China's central bank affects the global economy, including the United States GDP. We got some uh, corporate news for you this morning. Uh, WeWork has uh, named uh, Sandeep Mathrani as its new CEO. He is the former head of Brookfield Properties Retail Group. He's also been an executive at several other firms, including Vernado Realty uh, Trust. Uh, WeWork began a search, of course, for a new CEO in November after co-founder Adam Newman was ousted. Mathrani will report to Marcelo Clore, who remains as executive chairman. But this is a major shift in terms of what the company is going to be, because Mathrani is a real estate guy. Right. This is now a real estate company. If you ever had illusions... No longer a marketing... If you had illusions... Lifestyle. It was a technology company. If, whatever you thought it was, it is not that. It is a real estate company. I'm not saying that that's boring unto itself, but it is a real estate I'd company. Say that's probably a good thing. It may be. He's going to bring some discipline to what they're doing. The question, though, is whether the magic sauce, the special, whatever was happening at WeWork, the reason why, part of what, why WeWorks do work, by the way, to the extent they work, is there is a feeling when you walk in them that there's something special going on, that it's not just a real estate company that's a little bit different. And so the question is, can he still capture whatever magic that is and also bring the sort of uh, business discipline that comes with owning and yeah. leasing lots of space around the world. If I were an investor, I'd want more, less of the magic and more of the discipline and show me where this is. Unless and, it and becomes... You're right. I, look, the WeWorks that you walk into, it's right. kind of fun. But I don't know that that matters beyond, okay, that's not going to change, right? It's still the well, same sort well, of... And there's lots question. of imitators, by the way, right. Right. now out right. there. In, in major urban centers, and there's a half a dozen different choices now in New York City yeah. compared to. A we'll give works. you beer at the right. The, everybody's the, better soundproofing. Everybody's going to give you the beer. Everybody's going to try to upsell you yep. on all of the other products. Yep. We'll see whether uh, whether this is the the next way to get there. But they still got to get to a 15 billion dollar valuation. So he's got his work. He's got some wood wood to chop, as they say. Yes, he does. The Iowa caucuses tonight officially kicking off presidential election season. Mike Bloomberg isn't competing in Iowa. But his tax plan is getting a lot of attention this morning at a proposal unveiled over the weekend. He says that he would unwind corporate tax breaks put in place by President Trump, going up to 28 percent and impose a 5 percent surtax on incomes above $5 million a year. That would also uh, catch capital gains. And he tax carried interest and uh, catch on the, uh, the estate tax as well in terms of the step up. Right, and that would be 56% or higher in places like at the New top. York or California. Bloomberg isn't necessarily against a wealth tax. It's just that he doesn't think it would pass constitutional muster. And so that's interesting because he's one of the wealthiest guys in the country, right. if not the world. Right, I might say um, that too. I don't think it's constitutional. <laughs> Stay away. I, I don't think it's for that reason, though. I don't think it's Look, personal. Look, a wealth tax, I think, is in, incredibly difficult to even figure out how you would go about calculating that and then staying on top of it and right. make sure. Uh, it seems to me like there'd be all kinds of dodges and ways, ways to get around it. I'm certainly not defending that. I'm just saying he's going to have a hard time saying, yep. oh, wealth tax is unconstitutional. Well, and the diminishing returns, right? Like if you take 10 percent of somebody's wealth and then you take 10 percent the next year. I don't know, I start with 68 billion. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but so, but you start to really, if if, they, if that 
you know, principle doesn't offset what you've taken. After a while, there's nothing left to take. Money finds ways around. Yes. Beyond that. Yeah, absolutely. Jeff Bezos is being sued by Michael Sanchez, his girlfriend's brother. Sanchez is accusing Bezos of defamation, alleging that Bezos's representatives spread false rumors to news outlets that Sanchez provided graphic nude photos of Bezos to the press. A lawyer representing Lauren Sanchez provided a statement on her behalf saying, Michael is my older brother. He secretly provided my most personal information to the National Enquirer. That's a deep and unforgivable, unforgivable betrayal. Michael Sanchez has denied leaking those nude photographs. Last month, the forensic audit alleged that Bezos's phone was hacked by an account associated with Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. All right, so when I saw that story about yeah. MBS, I thought, oh, was he the one who actually leaked the photos yeah. to the National Enquirer? Yeah. But uh, they well, so still this, think it's her brother? Is that what this lawsuit's well, so about? The, 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 the strange part about this whole story is it's clear from all of the forensic reporting that's been done that the brother did provide... Okay. So he admitted it at to one the point. National Park. He, he admitted, admitted it. it at one That's point. why the lawsuit. He said there were some things he strange. gave, and maybe not photos. I think at one point he admitted he had given some text, but right. maybe he said he didn't provide the photos. But he right. admitted. Then there's that the allegation against text. MBS. Then there's this issue, and it's like a soap opera within the Sanchez family about whether they're close now or not. Maybe the whole. Maybe the, it sounds like the whole family is completely split as what, a function what, what, of all this. What's the opening line of Anna Karenina again? All families are troubled just yeah, in different all, ways. Well, all happy families are happy in the same way. All troubled families are, are troubled in different, different ways. ways. Yes, right. yes. And um, then speaking yeah. of uh, Jeff Bezos, did you see his tweet last night? Uh, he was at the Super Bowl, and here it is. He uh, got a chance to meet Lizzo, and I guess uh, sometimes you can also be starstruck. He said, I just took a DNA test. You got Can we get the music, guys? I just took a DNA test. Turns out... I'm 100% Lizzo's biggest fan. Does everybody get We're probably that? not allowed to play the music because of copyright issues. So copyright, go ahead and sing it for us. Maybe we could do the snippet. Go ahead, sing it. Congratulations to the Kansas City Chiefs taking the Lombardi Trophy back to Kansas City for the first time in 50 years. MVP quarterback uh, Patrick uh, Mahomes uh, leading the Chiefs with three touchdown drives in the final minutes of the game to overcome a double-digit deficit. But we like to talk about the ads. Yes, let's do that right now. Let's talk about the other big winners and losers, and that would be the advertisers. I don't know if you guys watched the ads as closely as you watched the game. Yes. Yes. Good? Bad? I thought the production values were over the top again this year, and even more so than in the past. And progressively, more and more, we're seeing a lot more ads related to... Uh, social issues right. that mm-hmm. companies want to take a stand on. Like the Snickers ad. The Snickers ad. I actually like the Snickers ad. I thought the Snickers ad was good. I don't know if I'm allowed to say Especially this. Especially the guys, the selfie guys falling in. What up? The whole, I thought yes, that was like the best part of Thank you. I thought that both of the political ads were good. I actually thought the Trump ad was good. America demanded change. Donald Trump wins the presidency. And change is what we got. And I thought the Bloomberg ad was good. When I heard Mike Les stepping into the ring, I thought, now we have a dog in the fight. They were smart. They were I thought well they played. were smart ads in terms of what they were focused on, and how the audience, they were doing it, yep. what the audience was. If you notice, by the way, spend the money. That's Trump was going to do two 30-second ads. Originally, it said he was doing two 30-second ads. Ended up pushing one of the ads, I think, to a cheaper slot after, after the Super Bowl was technically over. 
but put that first 30-second ad in, in early, yeah. which I think then probably forced, I don't know if it forced the hand, I don't think he was trying to force the hand of, of Mayor Bloomberg to do his 60-second ad, but there would be a debate about who was spending more money. And who was spending smarter. I, yes. I felt conflicted about the Google ad. Did you see the Google ad? Hey, Google. Show me photos of me and Loretta. I, cr- I did too. Loretta. I, I cried. I, I did too. I, I actually teared up. So did Natalie. I cried, and yet at the same time, I thought, this is "Yes, they know everything about creepy. you, and right. it's creepy." Yeah. It's creepy. I saw the perfect tweet that came afterwards. First, Google tugs at your heartstrings, uh, then they steal your data. Yeah. I think that was Ivan. Yeah. That. It's, a, it's 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 apt. I, my favorite ad was the Groundhog's Day ad that Jeep did with Bill Murray. I don't know if you guys saw it. It was late in the fourth quarter. Okay, campers, rise and shine. It's Groundhog Day. And don't oh, no. no, I did not see okay, it. Okay, it came late in the fourth <laughs> quarter. But back to Groundhog Day, one of the best movies of all time. Yes. What breaks you out of finally going through this again and again? Same day, every single day. Get away from me, Ned. Get away. Right. Uh, what does it is he finally sees a Jeep. And that breaks him out of this same day again and again. Steals the groundhog and takes off with it. So I thought it was well played just because it's such a <laughs> iconic such movie an iconic with an iconic movie. brand. Right. True, right. Um, my favorite. Did you see the Cheetos ad? Did you like the Cheetos touching? ad? No touch. There was so much Cheetos on your fingers. I, I didn't, it was I the excuse. It was just the, your fingers are orange, so you can't do anything, basically. I'm going to need you to. Never mind. You can't touch this. Right, I can't help you with anything at any point because I with, have the with Cheetos. MC Hammer and can't touch this. Hilarious. Hilarious. Cheese will be next. Next on Squawk Pod, Iowa votes. Former New York City Mayor Mike Bloomberg may be sitting out the Democratic caucuses, but one Republican strategist thinks everything is going according to plan. You think it's a true rope-a-dope. You, re- you, you think that Bloomberg really wants Bernie Sanders to win? I think he's banking on the idea that Bernie Sanders gets a couple of these wins and then there's, a, there's only a few candidates left standing. Hello, I'm Laura Castleton, U.S. Head of Portfolio Construction and Strategy at Janice Henderson Investors. Is a brighter future possible? At Janice Henderson, we think it is. For 90 years, we've worked to help clients achieve superior financial outcomes and fulfill our purpose of investing in a brighter future together. We know that this means our thinking and our investments are helping to shape millions of brighter futures for the next 90 years and beyond. To learn more, go to JaniceHenderson.com. You are listening to Squawk Pod from CNBC. Today is the day, finally, when 2020 begins. Democratic voters gather for the Iowa caucuses, one step closer to narrowing the field of candidates for the Democratic presidential nomination. Leading up to the main event in schools and community centers across the Hawkeye state, Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders and Vice President Joe Biden have been swapping spots atop different polls. As of this morning, Sanders is leading the former VP by an average 24.2 percent to 20.2 percent. The caucuses begin at 7 p.m. Central Time tonight. Here's Andrew Ross Sorkin. Kevin Madden served as a senior strategist and spokesman for Mitt Romney's presidential campaign. Also, uh, Donald Schneider is here, economist at the policy research team at Cornerstone Macro. Prior to Cornerstone, Don served as chief economist on the House Ways and Means Committee. Uh, you're here at the desk, so I'll, I'll start with you. You look at uh, the surge uh, with Sanders. There's a surge in terms of the voting, or, or rather in terms of the polls. Not, though, in terms of if you look at some of the predicted polls and some of the other things, uh, in terms of how people are making bets. 
I think he's actually in the lead in the betting markets right now. But it has not. But you've seen other people surge. You've seen Bloomberg, for example, surge in a much more meaningful way. Yeah, I, th- I think that's correct. And you know, everyone has had their chance at the top of the betting markets. Right. But I think you know, right now, um, Sanders is in a really good position to win in Iowa. And does that then carry over elsewhere, or do you think that's very state specific? Uh, I think it does carry over. Not only does Iowa give you a lot of legitimacy, a lot of momentum going forward. I think he's already in the lead in New Hampshire. So I think that could kind of. You know, push into Biden's firewall in South Carolina. He, he may not win there, but he may um, do better than expected. Right. Uh, Kevin, I'm curious. We've been having a conversation all morning about Michael Bloomberg, who came out with his uh, new wealth tax. Uh, I don't know if it's, we're calling it a wealth right. tax. We're calling it a, a new tax on wealth uh, over the weekend. I think to get a little bit closer, frankly, uh, to where Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren may very well be, uh, the question is, does that move the needle? And to the extent that Bernie Sanders does well right now, does that push Bloomberg out of the game completely later, because that was always one of the big issues. Yeah, you know, Bloomberg, yeah Bloomberg's been pulled into what a lot of folks, uh, even some of, the more, some of the more moderate names inside this field have done, which is trying to micro-target their way uh, to uh, up the polls by appealing to um, a lot of these most base activist Democrats, uh, liberals, on things like economic policy, environmental policy, and social policy. But I think, you know, It's very hard to kickstart a presidential campaign, but Bloomberg's play, which has always been sort of trying to get an inside straight on the river card, uh, has been to have Bernie Sanders get a couple of wins in these early states and then essentially have a establishment freakout. Uh, so that the um, there's a consolidation behind Bloomberg, whereas he and Bernie Sanders are the only ones standing after Bernie Sanders has a couple of win in these early primary states. Okay, Kevin, and this, then is, the field. So this is a full rope a dope <laughs> yeah. plan you have going. <laughs> well, it's not my plan. That's Bloomberg. I mean, that's you Bloomberg's plan. You see Rahm Emanuel's op ed in the, in the yes, Wall Street no, Journal. Where you, the establishment but, but, is freaking out. But Kevin, you, you think it's a true rope a dope. You, re- you, you think that Bloomberg really wants um, Bernie Sanders to win tomorrow? Well, I think he's banking on the idea that Bernie Sanders gets a couple of these wins and then there's a, there's only a few candidates left standing and they're the ones who have the money. Bernie Sanders will always have the money. That's one of his biggest powers inside this field, which is that by farming all these grassroots donations, he's consistently led the way quarter after quarter in fundraising. So if it's, Ber- if it's Bernie Sanders, Mike Bloomberg, and maybe Tom Steyer, who still has his money in the game, um, that that really represents the best chance for Bloomberg to sort of uh, c- help consolidate the field uh, inside the Democratic establishment. Uh, I do, yeah. You think that's the whole plan? Yeah, because I think, you know, if with Bloomberg being allowed into the debates and then you're seeing, um, you know, I think if he does, it's going right. to come at the expense of, of Biden. And then you're really looking at someone not only. Don't forget you know, Rahm, Rahm Emanuel's uh, op-ed, but also you had John Kerry, our, our colleagues at NBC News, reporting that John Kerry was doing conversations uh, with his potential donors out right. at the Des Moines mm-hmm. <laughs> Hotel about what it would take for him to get in. So there's clearly some worry about the surge in the trend line that Bernie Sanders has right now inside the Democratic primary. And Kerry went on the record very deliberately and said, I am not running. Right. Uh, but when you hear, when you see the whole conversation that the NBC News producer overheard, clearly there was a conversation Definitely. about whether or not he might get yeah. in. Definitely indicative of a worry. 
Look, these caucuses are different, right? Because the first go-around, you vote for whoever you want, but then if your candidate doesn't get 15%, you have to vote for someone else. What's likely to happen in that scenario? Is it going to be Bernie Sanders gets all of Elizabeth Warren's, or are they both going to still get 15% and that will divide that population to some point? I mean, this is going to be interesting because if you're forced to actually go ahead and change your vote to somebody who has at least 15%, that gets rid of a lot of the noise that's out there when you have 11 candidates running. Right. Uh, I think, you know, Klobuchar, she's, you know, right now at the lowest, and I think all of her votes should probably go mostly to Biden, but then I think that favors him uh, at the same time. You know, I think Warren will probably make that threshold. Mm-hmm. Um, but, I, yeah, I think it's, it's going to be split between Biden and Sanders, and it's really unclear. Can I just ask you the sort of what I call the rational actor question? One of, the, one of the things that you keep hearing on this show and elsewhere is that ultimately the, the party, the voter, will be a rational actor, meaning they will only be trying to elect through the primary system somebody they think that can beat President Trump. So the question is, and and to the extent that virtually all the polls show that Bernie Sanders can't beat Trump, what is going on here? I think, you know, there's, there's one difference in terms of what you look for in a, you know, a nomination process, and that's ideological purity, someone who's very satisfying and kind of speaks to, you know, the most effective, you know, So so the rational actor idea may not be well, rational. I, I think Bernie Sanders' electability is being relitigated now. I think, you know, throughout this entire process, you've had everyone else who's come in first in the betting markets tank and fall off because it looked like they couldn't beat Trump. Bernie's never really had that test this time around, and he's now getting a second look at the best right. possible time. Okay. And I think they, they think he can win. Donald, thank you. Kevin, thank you. Appreciate Great it. to be with you. You bet. He's next. Next on Squawk Pod, Mohammed El Arian, Allianz chief economic advisor, says investors should not by the dip prompted by coronavirus concerns. That suggests that you think things are going to get worse before they, we get any sort of control on this situation. I do, Becky. We'll be right back. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Methane management is a critical part of achieving a lower carbon future. Chevron is taking action to keep methane in the pipe. Their 2028 upstream methane intensity target is set to be 53% below the 2016 baseline. They're committed to evolving facility designs and operating practices. And they've trialed over 13 advanced detection technologies, including drones and satellites. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com methane. This is Squawk Pod. Good morning. Welcome back to Squawk Box right here on CNBC. I'm Andrew Ross Sorkin along with Becky Quick. Joe is off today. Our guest host this morning, we are privileged to have the one and only Michelle Carissa Cabrera. CNBC. Always a pleasure. Former CNBC international correspondent and board member. And what, else, what other great honorific? I make an occasional speech. Yeah. Um, fears of the coronavirus outbreak have sparked misinformation campaigns on social media from hoaxes to conspiracy theorists. Facebook taking the rare step of policing dubious health content related to the outbreak. And Elon Mui joins us now 
with more on that. Good morning to you. Good morning, Andrew. Well, there's a reason why we describe this kind of information as viral. The World Health Organization is warning that misinformation about the coronavirus could prove physically dangerous. One false claim said that drinking bleach could cure the virus. Others had racist undertones. So that's all forcing the major tech platforms to step up their efforts to combat bad information. Facebook is making sure credible news sources are at the top of your news feed. It's restricting certain hashtags. And as you mentioned, it's taking down content that discourages treatment or tells people not to take appropriate precautions. Now, Google created what it calls an SOS alert. It lives at the top of any search result for the coronavirus and includes the latest news articles and links to the WHO. Meanwhile, Twitter is halting automatic search prompts that are misleading and creating its own dedicated prompt, hashtag know the facts. But that's not all. These days, even TikTok has to fight misinformation. A notice inside the app now pops up to remind users to verify facts with trusted sources. Still, big tech is facing criticism that it isn't being aggressive enough. Congresswoman Debbie Dingell has sent letters to executives at all four companies, and it says, quote, Much like this virus, misinformation, willful or benign, will continue to spread until measures are taken to limit exposure and treat the symptoms. So, guys, this crisis just gives Washington one more stone to throw at big tech. Back over to you. Hey, Elon, it occurs to me that uh, the tech companies are caught in a bit of a pickle here because if they do comply and go ahead with it, it proves that they can stop misinformation if they choose. Yeah, well, what they'll say is that the steps that they're taking are part of their existing policies. So Facebook, for example, already has a policy that it'll remove content that incites harm or that encourages people to do harm to themselves or do harm to others. And so this is part of that policy. And they can sort of point to that as saying we've already tried to address these types of issues. Um, I think the good news, if there is any, is that at least Twitter is saying that it has not seen any significant coordinated disinformation attempts to spread this type of information. So these are sort of more of one-off rumor mill conspiracy theories that are getting out there, but they haven't seen any type of broad-scale effort to see this information to the public. I guess my point is that, that if they can combat this, they are more like a news organization and an editorial process than they are a bulletin board where they have no control. Back to if they want to well, do the, it, they the, can do it. If they don't, yeah. Well, the part, part of the difficulty around, for example, the political ad question is that the gray area perhaps is larger. I think in a crisis like this, um, where there is clear, concrete information coming from trusted sources like the World Health Organization, it makes their job a whole lot easier, right? It's a lot easier to say it's clear that we know drinking bleach is not going to kill the coronavirus, whereas the gray area that lives around the political sphere is much more difficult. Um, they're also facing a lot of questions and a big test tonight as the Iowa caucuses get underway of how they're going to address misinformation and disinformation on their platform. Um, so those two efforts are happening in parallel. But I think that the coronavirus information is much more clear and the lines are much more black and white. Elon, thank you. Good to see you. Even before the outbreak of the coronavirus, the U.S. Economy was facing a number of big challenges. Steve Leisman is here. He joins us as we try to calculate the impact of all of them combined. Yeah, in a broad range, though, uh, Becky. Uh, while the coronavirus dominates the headlines, it's just, in fact, one of the major challenges the U.S. economy faces that could depress gr- growth in the first half of this year and which markets believe could even bring the Federal Reserve back into play. The coronavirus has prompted downgrades to China's economy, somewhat less to the U.S. economy. Boeing, 
Remember, we were talking about that last week. That could by itself take a half point off U.S. GDP this quarter and maybe next before a third quarter rebound. Tariffs. The U.S. and the world economy still face substantial tariffs, though some of them came off, uh, but most of them remain. The U.S. manufacturing global economies were already weak before corona, though there were some signs of stabilization. Just focusing on corona, several forecasters uh, have said it could reduce China's GDP by up to a half a point, and that could then shave several tenths of a point off the U.S. GDP in the first half. People's Bank of China responding to the potential slowdown with a large liquidity injection. And some U.S. forecasters think the Fed could cut as well. The downdraft in global yields and stocks on Friday suggests the bearish view is the one prevailing right now. The Fed funds futures market now trading with a 70 percent chance of a rate cut in September and now a greater than 50 percent probability of a second cut by December. What happens, guys, as you know, the financial markets price this in immediately around the world, and then we wait for the hard data to show it or not. You remind me of the mechanics of central banking and liquidity. So there's lots of shutdown in China. Starbucks is closed. Nobody's going out. So when their central bank injects liquidity into all of the banks, what is that doing for them? Are the the banks unable to get liquidity because... Because they won't lend with each other. Okay. Uh, There's two pieces to this. One is that they provide greater liquidity so there's no... uh, sort of freeze up in the interbanking market. The other is it provides more basis for additional loans, possibly, uh, in in China as well. They did this back other times, 2015, 16, they've injected liquidity, and they'll do it repeatedly. The PBOC has not been shy about acting in these sort of cases. Steve, thank you very much. Joining us right now to talk about all of this on the Squawk Newsline is Mohamed El Arian. He is chief economic advisor at Allianz. He also penned an op-ed in the Financial Times over the weekend on that topic. The piece is entitled, Coronavirus Should Snap Investors Out of the Buy-the-Dip Mentality. I guess, Mohamed, that suggests that you think things are going to get worse before they, we get any sort of control on this situation. I do, Becky. And this is different from what I've thought for a long time. For a long time, I thought that the market sentiment was so strong that we could overcome a mounting list of economic uncertainty. But the coronavirus is different. It is big. It's going to paralyze China. It's going to cascade throughout the global economy. And importantly, it cannot be counted, as Michel just noted, by central bank policies. So I think we should pay more attention to this and we should try and resist our inclination to buy the dip. Mohammed, your, your big concern on this is that what we're hearing now that these shutdowns will take place to February 9th, I guess, is not going to be the case. We're going to have to step back and wait to see what happens and then assess from there. Yes, it paralyzes economic confidence. So how often do you get a shock? that affects the demand and the supply side, that disrupts domestic and international activities, that derails the service sector at a time when the manufacturing sector is still weak. And all this in the context of fragilities in the global economy. So I do worry about this. Um, This one is different. It is not the disruption to Saudi oil production in September. It is not the missile attack um, that the U.S. carried out on an Iranian general. This is a fundamental shock to economic growth in China. Mohammed, I want to just ask you how we're supposed to process where I was talking just earlier about the hard data. We're going to get a lot of data this week. The jobs number comes out. We have ISM at 10 o'clock today. This is data that the market... It's all outdated. Well, that's... that's, But that's only the first part of my question, right? Is we get a lot of data this week. That's outdated. 
And then we're supposed to look through the first quarter data and discount that from the Boeing shutoff or, or shutdown. And then, I mean, when do we go back and say, here's the true state of the economy? I think what you're saying, Mohammed, among the things you're saying is it's just too much for the market to discount. Yeah, I mean, put, a, put one phrase in, in your head, um, Steve, if I may, which is accelerating sudden stop dynamics. We know it well on the financial sector. That's what hit us in 2008. We don't often see it on the economic side. That is what's happening. It's increasingly a sudden stop to economic activity in China. And it comes in the context of earnings have been good. The data on the U.S., I don't worry about the the backward-looking data in the U.S., um, but it does come in the context of weak European data. Already we only had economic growth of 1.2% in 2019. For me, that's very close to stall speed. So look at the effects First and foremost, showing in China, that data is going to pick it up quickly. Then in emerging Asia, then in Europe, and it will come to us in a much smaller scale, and it will come to us much later than elsewhere. So it's going to, it's going to take an, a, a little bit of time to play out in the U.S. Mohammed, thank you. That's the podcast for today. On our rundown tomorrow, Ron Barron, the mutual fund investor and optimist's 2020 market advice. Don't stop thinking about tomorrow. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Tune in weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 a.m. Eastern. To get the smartest takes and analysis from our TV show right into your ears, subscribe to Squawk Pod wherever you listen. And if you like this podcast, let us know. We're on Twitter at Squawk CNBC. We'll meet you back here tomorrow. We are clear. Thanks, guys. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.